Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here. Today, the past informs the present. I'm uh, going to present to you uh, some moments from past Word Balloon episodes that, uh, in fact, pertain to uh, things that are going on today. I'm going to start with a conversation with Neil Adams about uh, the great Muhammad Ali and his work on the fine uh, Treasury Edition story, Superman vs. Muhammad Ali from the 70s. And that gives us a chance to look back at that and the great career of Muhammad Ali. Also, uh, DC's Watchmen, how about the way I just said that? Watchmen are invading the DC universe. And in fact, I guess you have to call it DC's Watchmen. It always was, looks like it always will be, uh, with the events of what happened in DC Rebirth. And it gives us a chance to kind of go back and uh, look at that debate over whether Watchmen should have been left alone whether it should have been given back to uh, Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons, or, you know, some of the struggles that the creators had uh, doing the Before Watchmen work that was done back in 2012. And uh, to illustrate that, you're going to hear from Dave Gibbons himself. You're going to hear from Ed Brubaker, who was a uh, a staunch uh, guy who said, no, this is wrong, it shouldn't be happening. And then Brian Azzarello, who wrote two of the series. Uh, he wrote the Comedian series and the Rorschach series, and he himself went through those same questions, and uh, we also kind of got into his mind and uh, heard what he thought of the characters he was about to work on. And um, again, the entire debate itself of whether before Watchmen should have happened. You know, much like uh, that, uh, whatever their plans are for the Watchmen characters, it's going to happen. And I think creators uh, are going to face that same question. Do I want to do it? Should I do it? Um and that's an individual decision that needs to be made. But from a corporate standpoint, sorry, the, the simple facts are uh, DC owns those characters and plans to work on them. But first, before we get to the before Watchmen stuff, a moment about Muhammad Ali. And I'm going to start with a very personal memory of Ali because I have a couple. Uh, not only growing up watching his excellent fights in the uh, 70s, I, I remember distinctly as a little kid the first Ali Frazier fight, the excitement behind it. I really got to follow his career because, like many sportsmen, Ali's career was covered on national television. To see the big fights live, you had to go to an early precursor of uh, pay-per-view called Closed Circuit TV, where you would go to a theater and watch the fight, a practice that really continued through the 80s. It really wasn't until the 90s that pay-per-view really took off in the home. You, there were occasional things. I remember the, the Larry Holmes-Drake Cooney fight was something you could see on pay TV from your home. But a lot of times you would. You'd have to go to uh, movie theaters or nightclubs where they uh, kind of had it wired for closed-circuit television to see some of these big events. Uh, that said, back in 1991, I got to meet Muhammad Ali because you might know that I, I covered boxing for 16 years between uh, a couple magazines, Ring Magazine and Boxing Illustrated, and then also on the radio, uh, both in Chicago at uh, The Score, sports radio uh, at the time, uh, 1160, now uh, 670, and uh, also ESPN's Chicago station, ESPN 1000. I got to uh, call fights there and interview people like Evander Holyfield and uh, Angelo Dundee, uh, Ali's trainer. And then uh, also nationally for what was the Sporting News Radio Network and is now the Yahoo Sports Network. So uh, I, I did have my opportunities of uh, going to big fights, meeting a lot of people. In print, I interviewed eight of Ali's opponents, uh, guys like Leon Spinks and Ken Norton and um, Ron Lyle. Uh, I, I Man, I gave the full list on, on Facebook the other day. Hang on a second. Let me get that l list out. 
Yeah, yesterday I, I couldn't help but be sentimental and think about uh, my time uh, in the Ali uh, world. And uh, it certainly started back uh, when I got a chance to interview people like Larry Holmes, Floyd Patterson, George Foreman, Archie Moore, Alonzo Johnson, Ron Lyle, Ernie Terrell, Leon Spinks, and Ken Norton. And they all had incredible stories about fighting Ali. Uh, a couple of those guys fought Ali as, a, as contenders when Ali was a contender. Guys like Archie Moore and uh, Alonzo Johnson in particular. And then the rest all fought him as, uh, as it, you know, when he was champ. Floyd Patterson, George Foreman, Archie Moore, uh, Ernie Terrell, uh, Leon Spinks uh, were all world title holders. Ken Norton wasn't when he fought Ali, but became one afterwards. Uh, you know, there was just a lot of really great fighters out there that uh, fought Ali, and he beat the best. And uh, you, you can't take that away from him. Yeah, he had a couple losses at the end of his career, but it was the end of his career, and that happens to pretty much everybody. Only only Marciano and right now Floyd Mayweather are the two guys that uh, managed to, you know, end their careers undefeated. But that said, back in 1991, I was covering sports for Boxing Illustrated. Uh, I was going to South Bend, Indiana to cover a fight that was going to be on ESPN Live. And the promo order told us that uh, Ali was going to be in attendance because he lived in Berrien Springs, Michigan, which was about 45 minutes away. He comes in in the middle of the fight card, and it was like the Queen of England entering the court, uh, the tennis court at Wimbledon. Everybody stopped what they were doing except for the two fighters in the ring, and everybody stood up, spontaneous, standing ovation. Ali comes in, and this is just at a, at a college gym uh, setting. It wasn't a big, huge arena. Uh, but it was great. Ali came in. I believe Howard Bingham was with him, uh, his photographer friend, and two of his daughters. That was the entire entourage. That's how simple a life Ali could leave, lead if he chose to. They got their seats. They all sat down. All of a sudden, a, a line formed, and Ali is uh, prepared for autographs. You might have seen the CBS um, special that was uh, shown this weekend as a tribute to Ali. He would... Uh, autograph um introducing um islam pamphlets and uh, that's how you got an autograph from ali and he was happy to do it and happy to personalize them and um you know this was back in 1991 so he still had he would shuffle when he walked but he had reasonably good motor skills um he still jogged he still boxed in terms of shadow boxing and hitting the heavy bag uh just to work out and kind of give himself some exercise um and in fact, at one point in the fight, when it was boring, people just started cheering Ali in the stands. And I kid you not, he burst from his chair with a lot of energy and shot four jabs in the air. Now, I'm not saying that he could have competed against you know anybody in the ring, but it was really great to see that he still had that much motor skills. So um, the promoter actually arranged for me to talk to him for about 10 minutes. And I'm like, I just want to say hello. But uh, the Evander Holyfield-George Foreman fight was coming up, so uh, I did have a subject to talk to him about, given that he had fought uh, Foreman. And, and I knew that you know he had been in attendance in a lot of Holyfield fights and had seen this George Foreman comeback that was around 20 fights in. Foreman hadn't fought any big-name opponents, but he was just kind of getting his timing back and, and kind of really had that kind of confidence of when the time comes... If I get my timing back and, I, and my muscle memory comes back, I will be ready to fight and win the heavyweight title. That's how confident George was. Ali was kind of in the Foreman camp. I wouldn't say to the point where he felt that Foreman was going to win, but he did say that, and he, he was able to speak to me, 
in a slightly slurred voice, and I'm going to imitate it a little bit because I unfortunately don't have the micro cassette that we recorded this on. But he said, I think George has a good chance. And he's like, George moves better now than he did when we fought. He stood still. And he and he goes, George jabs now. George does didn't jab back in the seventies. And he really went on to like compare the ni- the ni- early nineties George Foreman fight style to the seventies style that he fought himself. It was smart. It was sharp to the point, and uh, it it made a lot of sense. And he said, I think George is going to surprise a lot of people. It was terrific. I'm like, my friends are never going to believe I just had this conversation with Muhammad Ali. So I broke my reporter uh, shield and demeanor and said, champ, I I hope this isn't asking too much, but would you mind just saying, hello, John, this is Muhammad Ali. And he said, hello, John, this is Muhammad Ali, the greatest of all time. What's happening, baby? And I cracked up and he had a big smile on his face and he, he grabbed my shoulder and he shook it like in that way of a reassurance. And I'm like, I I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much. But it didn't end there. Then uh, later in the night, and this is the funny part of the story, uh, I had to go to the washroom. So I go to the men's room, and I finish. I'm washing my hands. Muhammad Ali walks in. There's two other guys in the washroom. We're like, oh, my God, champ. And he said, you want to see a trick? Not the thing that I think a man wants to hear in the washroom necessarily, but we're like, yeah, okay. And he he turns around, turns our, his back to us, and he goes, look at my feet. Look at my feet. And again, if you saw this, they showed it on the CBS show. It's a magician trick where it looks like he's levitating. His feet really do look like they're maybe an inch, two inches off the ground. And everyone's like, wow. And he's like, what am I doing? And we're like, uh, you're levitating. And he goes, how am I able to do that? We're like, we don't know. And he said, because I'm the greatest. And we immediately start laughing. He turns around. He's got a big smile. And we're like, you're amazing. And we left. And that's that's my fine Ali moment. I'm really sorry that he's gone, but I know that he was in a lot of pain. And uh, I'm glad that his pain has ended. And, uh, you know, he, he will continue to be the great inspiration that he was in life. And, uh, man, you know, we were just saying this about poor Darwin Cook. 2016 has just been a really tough year. And, uh, you know, especially, you know, as a as a fan of a lot of uh, great uh, creative people and certainly Ali is in that pantheon as well. So what a great man. What a great world figure. Um, Yes, he's a human being and he made some mistakes and that's too bad. But, you know, uh, most people do. He's human. And that's that is what makes Ali human. Um, It's okay in my book. And I I still love the guy. So uh, thanks for uh, listening to my little Muhammad Ali memory. And uh, that gives me the opportunity then to transition to uh, Muhammad Ali versus Superman, which probably looks like a weird book if you're a kid or under 30 or whatever and don't understand what was going on. But, you know, uh, Superman had a lot of big cameo uh, guest stars in the regular Superman titles, certainly during the Silver Age and even in the Bronze Age. Uh, Alan Funt from Candid Camera. You might remember Candid Camera, but that was the host of Candid Camera. Um, Pat Boone, uh, 50s uh, teenage heartthrob, was in there. Um, I'm trying to think of other like big celebrities that made their splashes, but there's like two names right off the bat. Um, certainly President Kennedy himself, uh, which sadly came out after he had passed away. But um, that was the kind of book that uh, Superman was, and it was a big deal. And uh, I don't know exactly how the uh, subject was introduced, but uh, Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill were approached to do the Muhammad Ali versus Superman comic book. 
their fight happened under an alien sun. So uh, Superman was not at his full powers, and Ali, being a human being, fought at his best. And it was a hell of a fight, and uh, Ali won. Sorry, I don't mean to spoil, but (laughs) he did. But it was an amazing project, and uh, certainly now an interesting historic curiosity, especially that wraparound cover with all the cameos of, like at a real championship fight, uh, both real and imagined celebrities, because Lucille Ball and Lex Luthor and the cast of Welcome Back, Cotter, are sitting next to Batman and uh, a lot of other uh, great, uh, great, welcome back, Cotter. All right, maybe quotes great <laughs> celebrities in the in the, uh, in the the arena. Uh, but uh, Neil Adams uh, talked to me about that excellent project back in 2005, December of 2005. Uh, so I want to bring you that portion of the conversation right now on Word Balloon. Let's talk about Superman versus Ali, yes. one, of, one of my favorites. In my opinion, the greatest comic book ever done. If I'm allowed to include my work with everybody else's, and people will forgive this, you know, an ego that may be out of control, I, I don't, I, I try not to, to do that. But from my point of view, at the comic book, that beginning to end represents what comic books ought to be about: Superman versus Muhammad Ali. It's a great book. It start, you know, goes from the inner city to outer space. Yep. I'm a, I'm a huge. How clever you are to say that. But it, but it does. <laughs> <laughs> and it, and I, I, I cover boxing uh, in my day job uh, in ah. sports radio, and and have to tell you that three-time uh, champion. And also, by the time it was released, in between uh, that third title, he when, lost one again. Yeah, but it was Leon Spinks, so we all knew he would eventually yeah. get it back. Hopefully, first of all, the the fight is itself a great scene. And, and a great series of, of panels. Uh, I, I love the, fights in there. That's true. I'm, oh, I'm talking specifically the, the Ali-Superman uh, fight. Just the little things, like Perry and Jimmy working his corner. Yeah. <laughs> that, that image of the pummeled soups being carried out of the ring. Yeah. Just great stuff. Was there, um, obviously Ali is his own you know, model in terms of how you, how you designed and, and had Ali moving, but, but as far as Superman's fighting in the ring, were there fighters that uh, you thought of uh, in terms of style? No, and in, in fact, uh, I, this, uh, you're you're probably much more uh, aware of uh, fighters than I am. I'm not as aware of fighters. I'm aware of the fictional side of fighters, mm-hmm. uh, and there's certain things that inspire me. And uh, one of them, oddly enough, not not a fighting thing, but a but a story by Bob Kaniger about a character that he did about a boxer who wouldn't go down. Yep, and. Uh, and I thought, you know, that's one of the best images I've ever seen in fiction and any kind of medium. And I thought, that's a great thing to do. You know, that I'm, and you know, if I could put a little plaque on that sequence, that's the plaque it would read. It would have dedicated to Bob Kanner. That's cool. But this idea of a guy having that much grit that, that his body would stay up after his mind is gone, practically, that, that he would not go down. He would stay up and then have the other fighter then back off and say, no. Sorry, I'm not going to do this. He's, I won. That's enough. I'm not going to knock him down. I think that, to me, it's sort of like a fictional character compared to a real character. Sure. And I didn't want to go to anybody's style. I didn't want to, like, oh, let me study so-and-so style. That To me, it was Ali. It was about Ali. It wasn't about Superman. Superman was my foil, and he could be, you know, another Ali or any other boxer, but it was Ali and the way he fought and the way he did things. And I, I would have put in more, you know, if, if I had more pages, I would have put in the rope-a-dope stuff. And all that. <laughs> Just uh, so, 
you nailed Ali's uh, persona as well. I mean, you really had him, as I say, in the inner city. I mean, you know, talking to kids and stuff the way he really was doing it at yeah. the time. I mean, well, it was great. I am, I am, and to be, I, I'm a blushing fan of uh, Muhammad Ali, not because I think that he's uh, brilliant, not because I think that uh, uh, there, there are things about him that make him better than anybody else, but except that he came at a time when it was important to stand up for certain things and mm-hmm. to be something and not and to be it beyond what you are in the ring and he did it and i to give you an example there's a uh it's really a small example but i did a cover for espn magazine mm-hmm. um, with uh and and they were deciding who was going to be uh you know the 100 greatest athletes of the century and i did a cover for them which was a copy of the cover that i did for superman muhammad ali and i had uh ali fighting jordan yep and it, I, I think it's one of the best pieces of art that I've ever done. I also have a, a piece inside, and it's about Ali. It's a double-page spread on the inside. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I was glad they gave it to me, and I think probably I would have been very upset had they not given it to me to do. But when they voted at the ESPN magazine, whoever the jerks were that voted, <laughs> uh, they voted uh, Jordan to be number one. Now, on a personal basis, I think Michael Jordan's a great guy. Sure. And I think that he represents the business of sports very very well but between you and the fence post the man gambles <laughs> okay. and, yeah. and and ali as a representative of forget black people in america but as a representative of a human being mm-hmm. standing for things that he believes in willing to make the sacrifice that take that it takes to do what he has to do for to stand for those things and to represent Ali is number one. There's nobody greater. So Jordan, I love, you know, my family loves Jordan, you know. Uh, what happens when Jordan makes a mess? He sticks his tongue out. I mean, <laughs> I love Michael Jordan. Really, really great. Sure. Number one, no. Number two, maybe, Ali, number one. Now I'm with you. Now you're preaching to the choir, and I, and I agree. It's interesting, and you, you do point out the fact that both actually did lose a bit of their prime. And and you point out the fact the reason why Jordan lost a little bit of his prime, quite frankly, was his gambling. Exactly. As opposed to Ali, who was standing on principle and really exactly. did sacrifice a lot more for a lot more yeah. people. Well, from my point of view, and uh, and I I have a very strong opinions about this, although I really try not to take too much time to express them. The hate and stuff that happens in America has done more damage to white people than it's done to black people, because it's just made them less. And black people have the right to be proud. And white people, unfortunately, have the responsibility to be ashamed. <laughs> and I don't really like being ashamed, but I, you know, there's, there's a part of me that has to say, really, 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 really wrong. If you want to see the action shots of Ali and Superman's fight, I have uh, reposted them at wordballoon.com under this uh, episode, and you can uh, take a look for yourself at uh, exactly what Neil was talking about. And uh, I couldn't agree more with his sentiments of Ali as truly the greatest athlete of all time. Okay, let's move on to uh, Watchmen. And uh, again, these are clips, but I think they inform the debate and discussion of what is going on today. You know, DC Rebirth uh, issue came out, and uh, certainly there are uh, signs pointing to the fact that Dr. Manhattan might be the cause of the uh, 10-year memory gap between the old DC continuity and uh, the current DC universe, one of the big mysteries that will be explored in DC Rebirth. 
lots of telling signs. Uh, Batman finding uh, the comedian's uh, symbolic uh, pin, the smiley face with the blood stain on it, embedded in the Batcave. Um, th- uh, an off-panel conversation that uh, uh, Pandora, who likely uh, held the key to this new DC universe, uh, with uh, somebody off-panel resulting in Pandora's death. She seemed to die in the same way that uh, Rorschach died at the hands of uh, Dr. Manhattan in Watchmen. And then again, as uh, Wally West's uh, wristwatch is reassembled in the closing pages of uh, of Watch or of DC Rebirth, uh, an off-panel conversation which we believe are direct quotes from the final pages of uh, Watchmen between Ozymandias and Dr. Manhattan. Who's to say? Uh, and again, uh, ending with the Watchmen clock and uh, the words that the clock is running. So before we get into the uh, interview clips that talk about this debate from all sides, I wanted to read from Tom Spurgeon's uh, blog. And uh, this is a June post. I think it was June 1st. But, uh, you know, I, I really like what he said here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be quoting Tom for uh, the next couple paragraphs here. Uh, I'm not immersed, I'm not immersed enough in the DC world to know what they're doing and what plot points or serious statements about the state of superheroes and which ones are feints in some other directions. I'll write that piece, but maybe I, I can slap together some thoughts before uh, summer becomes road trips and extended Twitter fights. The ideas asserted that somehow DC superhero comics got discombobulated or knocked off message by exposure to Watchmen and comics like it strike me as insanely silly. A Twinkie defense for shared universe mismanagement. It's certainly not, to my mind, even an accurate historical reflection of how some of the approaches in question developed. Although I'll grant that making that kind of pop culture hunch isn't exactly the work of Henry Still uh, Cominger, or Jer. I'm not even sure how you say his name. Moreover, there's a very good argument to be made, and people are going to make it, that it's the treatment of creators like Alan Moore in a general creative exchange sense, holding valuable creators to the letter of the law for the benefit of less interesting creators and editorial managers. The reduction of everything into malleable properties and the notion that you just have to sort of position these creations into new stories by whomever. That is what's most deeply harmful to the grand acts of creation that are these extended soap operas. Me, I think we're well past the day where sales are automatic to the point where the bulk of a line can be ordinary yet substantial. Comics need to be pretty good on an individual basis right now, at least until a much bigger audience is built than just one that wants to buy random ordinary books at mid-70s numbers. Good luck with that. Batman vs. Rorschach, if that's where they're going, needs to be a good comic book story, not just a good solicitation copy. It needs to be a thrilling comic, doubly so for the gag reflex of its manipulative and gimmicky, gimmicky nature. And triply so because it comes at the cost of making your company a less attractive place for many of the creators that have the juice to decide whether they're going to set up shop. As far as the end result of a more positive, happier line, I also have my doubts that things like that work as editorial edicts. Comics that are forgettable and hopefully trend to limit their effect to making the people that were buying this stuff anyway a little happier than they were buying the comics that were forgettable and miserable. I also wonder if the math is there for any of these top-heavy company infrastructures to continue making sense. In that way, efforts like these are a scramble for survival, not of comics, not of the DC universe, but a way of conducting business that employs many executive-level decision-makers. 
In the end, if you're an editor with a mission to publish an entire line, every problem looks like every problem looks like it needs a line-wide revamp. Well, you know, I know where Tom stands, and now we do as well, not only on this issue, but the larger issue of creator-owned books. One of the reasons why I'm quoting Tom is he comes up in conversation with Ed Brubaker. This was recorded back in 2012, and part of just a very long, winding discussion that Ed and I were having as he was leaving Marvel Comics to do exclusively creator-owned comics, and that's what he's been doing for the last four years. In fact, Ed has a, a new newsletter and uh, even address the issue of would he come back to uh, working for Marvel now that he's at a rest? Does he have new ideas for either the Marvel or the DC line? Let me leave you in suspense with that thought and go to our 2012 conversation specifically about Watchmen and before Watchmen. So hear it now, Ed Brubaker on Word Balloon. I don't quite understand why in comics we always default to thinking it's okay for the company to have control or the company to own a stake or the company to take half of the ownership of the thing because they pay you like a a fairly small page rate to do it. You know, if you look at, you know, this is what people kept saying around the whole before Watchmen thing that really kept galling me. was like, well, DC took a risk with the investment initially. I was like, what kind of risk did they take? It was like one of their number one selling comics. And if you probably, you know, I don't have the pay stubs, but I'm willing to bet that they didn't spend more than 100 or 120 grand having Watchmen made in the first place. It's really interesting, but everyone was saying, you know, they took this risk, they took this risk. Well, it's like a book publisher takes a risk too every time they give an author in advance. And they don't keep all the media rights or half of the ownership of the book. You know, pick up any book, it's copyright to the author. And, you know, 90% of the books on your bookshelf, the author was given a hefty advance to, to write the book, you know, and that's a risk too. Warren Ellis got probably a lot of money to write Gun Machine, but, you know, Mulholland Press doesn't own 50% of Gun Machine. You Understood. Know, I'd be willing to bet Warren probably got paid more than he got paid to write comics, you know, where the publisher tried to take 50% of the ownership. So it's like... It's really bizarre to me that, that we all have just sort of accepted that that's just how comics is because comics are expensive to create. And it's like, yeah, they are expensive to create. And, you know, I know that because I paid for the creation of them for like six years. <laughs> They're not sure to do. But, you know, you don't need to sell that many to make your money back. So, you know, if you have, if you have moderate sales, your, your, your risk is incredibly low. So to say the publisher takes the risk and the publisher takes it, it just seems like it's such a knee-jerk thing to say. And it's like, yeah, well, the publisher takes the risk in every industry, and they don't take as much as they try to in comics. Understood, and you're right. And I think a lot of comic readers don't know how the business works, and it's easy to look at the decades because I, I, I'll, I'll even uh, fess up that um, you know part of my argument as well for Before Watchmen existing on its own was – well, you know, I mean, certainly uh, Superman has moved on since, you know, Siegel and Schuster and, you know, other other creators have have worked on it, you know, the, the property. And again, not excusing the absolute screw yeah. job that happened. But, uh, you know, yeah, it's that's the thing. Well, We've grown I, up I, with... I'm not sure that there's a case of either Siegel or Schuster ever asking anybody not to work on the book. <laughs> like, I think there's a difference between creating like a, like a character that was meant for recurring adventures that you sold to a company and you can regret your, 
your business dealings for sure. Everybody does. I mean, it's, it's I'm sure 90% of every contract, everybody wishes that they'd gotten one thing changed for this or that. We all do. I, you know, I have, I have my regrets. Everybody in this industry, I'm sure has regrets about things they did or didn't sign. Um, but I think, you know, that was, that was what got me. It was like, watch them. Like, this is like saying, well, we published Catcher in the Rye, so we're going to do this thing that's like, that's about why Holden, that's about Holden's nervous breakdown that he's recovering from. You know, it's like, don't you want to see that moment? It's like, no, I want to, I just want the book to exist the way it existed. And, you know, it, because it's comics, we think of everything as a franchise instead. And I think that's what, if they had done it right away, probably nobody would have ever said anything. But it was like the fact that they waited, what, 25 years? Well, yeah, but it, obviously it's because, you know, a guy like Paul Levitz, you know, felt, I think, a personal obligation and a promise that he had made to Alan Moore and Dave that he wouldn't do it. And now it's yeah. unfortunately in the hands of the faceless portion of the conglomerate that didn't make those deals. Yeah, and, exactly. but, also, but also they do. And, and, and again, I, I, I would appreciate a rebuttal to this. Both, you know, <laughs> David, sir. No, honestly, man, because you're, you're really coming from it from the perspective of a creator. I, I am a pure reader and a novice and am on well, a I'm, I'm side coming at it more from a perspective of a fan. But I also like what got me galled about it was the fact that, you know, Watchmen had been proclaimed as this sort of victory for creators' rights. And yes. And even though, you know, the book had never reverted to Alan and Dave and you knew that Alan had had sort of severed his ties with DC over, you know, there's a variety of stories that go around, you know, about things that were said to him post Watchmen and, and, you know, by people at the company and, and the things about, you know, them selling promo stuff and not giving them any money for that. Like, yes, there's a variety of stories you hear. And, and, you know, I've heard various takes on a lot of them, but ultimately DC sort of, I think regretted that they chased him off back then. And I think Paul always saw Watchmen as that special thing. It was also one of their best selling books ever. You know, it's one of the best selling graphic novels in history. Of course. Absolutely. And they make a fuck ton of money on it, you know, and people can go, well, Alan and David made a lot of money on that. It's like, yeah, but DC has made, you know, 10 times what they made on it, <laughs> you know, on a book that everyone, everyone, including DC thought that they were going to give back to these guys a year later. And, you know, so it's, it's kind of bizarre, but I always felt like, well, at least they just, you know, they, they let it be what it is and they did all the nice special editions and I would buy them all. And, and I was just such a fan of, of, uh, Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons that for me, it was just like, it came as a shock, but it also was like this sort of blatant disregard for the fact that Watchmen, was, I was more offended that it, because I'm not upset at, at friends of mine who are working on those books or, you know, I, I don't begrudge anybody like the, the amount of money that DC is, is throwing around on that stuff. And, you know, we all work on things that are, you know, there's some compromised, you know, morality behind that stuff. I mean, I made, a, I, you know, I bought a house writing Captain America, you know, and sure. I was glad that Siegel and Kirby had settled over it, but, you know, when I started, when I, when I accepted the job, I didn't know that ahead of time, you know, and I, I wrote Batman and I never worried about Bill Finger, you know, sure. like I, you know, this is the industry that, you know, part of it was you just understood that DC and Marvel had changed the way that they 
expected. They didn't do that stuff anymore. You know, anything after, you know, the early 80s, it seemed like they had rectified a lot of their contracts. And, you know, they weren't doing the kind of things that they did in the 40s through the 60s. And, you know, Watchmen was a prime example of that. You know, Marvel was in this big feud with Jack Kirby over, you know, giving him his artwork back and giving him an At that exact same time, yeah. Yeah, at the exact time that Watchmen was announced, it was the exact same. Because was, I was at that San Diego con, and they had a big panel about Jack Kirby. And um, the panel had Frank Miller, Alan Moore, Gary Groth, and Marv Wolfman. And they were talking about Kirby. And Jim Shooter was in the audience, sitting like a few rows behind Jack Kirby and Roz Kirby. And Jim Shooter stood up and started yelling at the people on the panel. And it was just a really intense thing. And I was there. Like, my friend Dave was sitting right in front of Jim Shooter, actually. <laughs> wow. And it was just, like, this really intense moment. And this was the exact same week that Watchmen was, like, announced. And, like, I was at the panels where Alan Moore was talking about how this was this revolutionary deal of greater ownership and all this stuff. You would look back and you go, well, you know, they changed the way they are now. And, you know, it'd be great if they could retroactively go back and fix this stuff. But that's not the way industries work. You know, whoever buys whatever auto plant doesn't go back and, you know, exactly. treat the people who were working there 40 years, you know, previously right. in a different way. You treat, you change the mistakes that are happening in your field going forward because you bought a new company for its assets. Like, I understood that going in. You know, we all, all of us who work in this industry, the majority of us, I think, are pretty eyes wide to, you know, the fact that the guys who created Superman sold it for like 180 bucks. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, that's yeah, it's not, been amazing that's seeing that statement. That, yeah, and, you know, we all know Bill Finger, you know, got screwed, and we yep. all know, you know, all these stories. So, you know, it's not like, it's not like any of us went in thinking that that isn't the way this industry works. And, you know, you just don't do those deals. And you know that, like, Marvel and DC now have policies in place. If you create new characters and they make movies out of them or cartoons or toys, like, you get stuff for that. You get a piece. I also feel like, you know, like, my generation of people, of, of creators, has known all along. Like, if I create a Batman villain, DC owns that character. Like, I don't, I don't not sign my work for hire for that one and go, oh, I own Santa Claus, you know, which was a Batman <laughs> villain I created that was a German, <laughs> a, a German accented crazy Santa Claus. Like, why hasn't that been used? Come on, Scott Snyder, what the fuck? I want to move some, Bat some Batman, you put Santa Claus in there for your Christmas special. Uh, um, but yeah, it's, it's really interesting, it's an interesting time in the industry, I think, because like all this stuff, I talked to, to Spurgeon about this, like this all felt like settled history. You know, yeah, you knew that the previous generations of creators had all been kind of fucked, you know, but at the same time, you know, when you're working in the industry and you're making a living, you're like them. You're, you're trying to pay a mortgage or you're trying to raise your kids or put your kids right. in college. You just want to get paid to write stories because it's all you can do and you love comics. And, you know, you don't imagine that when you create, you know, like Gotham Central or, you know, uh, the Fantastic Four or any of this stuff, that it's going to go anywhere. I don't know if you know, but Ed Brubaker has a uh, newsletter now that he's doing. You can subscribe to it. His first edition closed 
with uh, answering the question, why quit doing work for higher superhero comics? So uh, you heard the 2012 answer to that question. Here's the modern answer. Yesterday online, a ton of people were very upset about Captain America, which, as you know, is a book I wrote for Marvel for about eight years. I guess because of the Cap movies being based on a lot of my work with the Winter Soldier, a lot of people decided to scream at me about what Marvel was doing. So I spent half the morning explaining to people, I don't work at Marvel. I haven't worked there for about five years, and I have no say in what they do or don't do. I don't even read our Marvel or DC books on a monthly basis anymore, because after about 15 years writing superheroes, I have pretty much low interest in the genre. I can see the hooks coming. I know where all the stories will eventually head, end up. The good guys will win, and all will be right with the world until next month. But amidst all the upset fans calling me a Nazi and other fun things for a comic I had nothing to do with and haven't read, I thought this is why more people should just follow creators and read original comics, which is what I like to call creator-owned comics. If readers want consistency and passion and craft, it's a lot more rare in company-owned superhero comics than it is outside of them. Sure, there have been great long runs on these books. I managed to get lucky and have long runs where I got to do what I wanted to do, mostly on Captain America and Daredevil. But these runs are generally the exception. Because the thing is, with those company-owned characters, there are always going to be events and reboots and twists that are spoiled online or in the media first, and there's always going to be outraged fans because of it. I get loving superhero comics, and I get following characters, believe me. And I love when I see people dressed as the Winter Soldier or shipping Stucky, but I, I feel, I don't know what that meant, but I feel like way too many comic readers act almost like they're forced to buy Marvel and DC books, like it's a government program or something. It's not. There are plenty of great comics where the art is by the same people every issue, where there is never a fill-in issue or a reboot or a retcon. In fact, many of the creators who you love on Marvel and DC books are just doing their finest work outside those big companies. Jason Aaron's Southern Bastards and The Goddamned are two of my favorite comics. Me too. Uh, Kieran Gilliam and uh, Jamie McKelvey did a great run on Young Avengers, but Wicked plus Divine is them unfiltered. I don't have to tell you about Saga and Bitch Planet and Sex Criminals, I'm sure. All by creators who made big names at Marvel and DC, all of whom are happier uh, doing work that they totally control. Look, anyway, you know all this. Most likely, if you're on Ed's mailing list, it's because you read his current comics. But after a day of people screeching at him about a comic he had nothing to do with, I'm going to go back to first person. I remember how happy I was not to be part of that world anymore. People are asking why I don't go back to Marvel, assuming assuming there was some huge problem that caused me to leave. And it it really was just a slow burnout, tiring of endless events and stunts and reboots. Now, don't get me wrong. I wish no ill on Marvel or DC. I don't think the comics market could survive without them. And I made a good living working for both of them for a long time. I just wish sometimes when people are white-out raging about the things that DC and Marvel do, they just go buy Southern Bastards or Bitch Planet or any of a dozen other great comics owned and controlled by their creators instead of going online and yelling at giant corporations to change how they do business. Ed Brubaker, and uh, I agree with what he's saying. Uh, I find myself sometimes angered at a, at a story choice. It's been a long time, so I get it. But I also think that ultimately these are the companies' uh, playthings to do with what they want. Um, hopefully Tom Brevoort's going to be coming back to uh, Word Balloon in the next few weeks to talk about this further. And hopefully we'll get more uh, people on uh, to talk about DC Rebirth. I will tell you that I had a new episode all planned and unfortunately, the, the recording sucked, and that's why it's been so long since there's been a new episode. I wanted to give uh, the Nick Spencer, Captain America conversation a chance to, to reach as large of an audience as possible before I decided to uh, switch to a, a new episode. And that's why I left it up there a little bit longer than a week. 
but uh, was already with this conversation. It was with another DC Rebirth uh, creator. It failed. The good news is we've rescheduled for next week. So in a couple episodes, there'll be a couple in between, but you will be hearing uh, from that creator and new, a new conversation about DC Rebirth. But back to the situation at hand, before Watchmen and Watchmen itself entering the DC universe. Is it right? Is it wrong? Should there have been more material beyond the original 12-issue miniseries? Dave Gibbons was kind enough to join Word Balloon a couple times, and uh, back in 2012... It was right after the announcement was made, and uh, Gibbons himself was online with a, a statement. Certainly Alan Moore was absolutely against what happened, but uh, it was interesting to uh, see that Dave uh, agreed to, well, I guess I was going to say he agreed to it. I don't think contractually he had much choice. Again, DC owns these characters. That said, Dave uh, did release a statement regarding Before Watchmen, and you may remember it, but here's exactly what he said. The original series of Watchmen is the complete story that Alan Moore and I wanted to tell. However, I appreciate DC's reasons for this initiative, meaning before Watchmen, and the wish of the artists and writers involved to pay tribute to our work. May these new additions have the the success that they desire. So that was uh, Dave Gibbons uh, at the beginning of the Before Watchmen project. Luckily, I had the opportunity to speak to him about it as well. And uh, this is what he had to say. Here's Dave Gibbons about the prospects of Before Watchmen on Word Balloon back in uh, Memorial Day of 2012. Welcome back to Word Balloon. Well, it's a pleasure to be back, John. I really enjoyed the podcast, and I remember we spoke a long, long time ago when the Watchmen movie was was all abuzz, so it's good to talk to you again. I am really enjoying the new series with Mark, The Secret Service. Well, thank you. And, uh, you know, uh, if I may, because, it, I th- you know, we talked right around the time before the movie came out mm-hmm. and and your book had been out as well about your process on Watchmen and that just looking back on those last 3 years it really seemed like a wonderful victory lap for you uh and i and i wonder <laughs> from from your perspective from the movie moving forward and stuff what the last 3 years have been like well i don't know that it was a victory lap i'm not quite sure what the victory would be i i perhaps still being here after 25 years might be a victory in itself but no i mean i really really enjoyed the whole watchman movie experience shortly before it started i actually had dinner with um with mike mignola and i said to mike you know you've been through the hollywood mill with hellboy what can i expect what what should i do what should i be careful of he said well dave first of all there probably won't be as much money in it as you might think and he was absolutely right even more so in the case of uh, watchman which as you know is owned by uh, dc comics um, he said, but you will have some great travel. You'll go to some great places, stay in nice hotels, meet some really interesting people. So just enjoy it. And that's what I did. That was my watchword. Um, they were really good at, at, at Warner Brothers. They included my family in it as well. My wife got to visit the set with me. Uh, I managed to get 27 members of my family into the London premiere. Um, I, fl- I, I flew my stepdaughters and my son and his, his girlfriend over to um la for the hollywood premiere we had a a fantastic time and of course the movie came out was out for a week or two and then magically hollywood stopped calling but (laughs) (laughs) but i had been warned of this and it was just what i expected but really the kind of year year and a half when it was all rolling along was um a really good time and i was able to get involved in things like the motion comics which i believe we spoke about before yes 
which was an interesting experiment. You know, I have my reservations about it. I think there's something there um, with the combination of um, um, comic strips and motion or interactivity that needs exploring. And I am actually on other fronts exploring, which we may talk about later. Um, so that was a great experience. Um, but it was, yeah, I mean, it, it was really, really interesting, really good fun for all the family. And then it stopped. Uh, and so then I've had to get back into, uh, get back to my fighting weight and uh, start, start producing <laughs> monthly comics again. And let me tell you, although I can still do it, um, I was a little bit rusty. And uh, initially things were taking me a little bit longer than they used to. I guess this is the story of, of age anyway. Um, but as succeeding issues go by, I'm getting faster and faster and remembering exactly what it felt like to be in full production. Fortunately, not quite as punishing as when Alan and I were doing Watchmen all those years ago. But it's it's much though I enjoyed swanning around the world being Dave Watchman Gibbons. It, it really is nice to be back at the drawing board and to have some good scripts to work on and to have the buzz of excitement of uh, new material getting out there. The elephant in the room about before Watchmen, and what I wanted to know, honestly, just briefly, is what you think of this tug of war not amongst the fans because ever since the announcement has been made you made your statement dave and 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 if as much and as as little as you want to expand on that that's that's your choice but i find it interesting the the discussion that's going on and 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 i wonder if you know amongst the fans and certainly i'm sure you've seen it mm-hmm. or or at least are aware of it and stuff and it, it what what you think of uh, the 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 tug of war amongst the fans about this well, I, you know, I'm going to consider my words very carefully on this, John. I'm, Fair enough, sir. I'm, I mean, I'm not surprised you, you, you asked, but, you know, I, I was very careful in my choice of words for that quote that I let DC use because I obviously wanted to say something, but I really at this point don't want to say much more than that. You know, it's one of those situations where you either say nothing or you say everything, uh, and one thing that I have noticed with the internet is it's re- it's very reactive. Um, it's very very difficult to sort out fact from opinion. There are things that I've read about the history of Watchmen and the ramifications that are so far off the beam. I have no idea of where they've come from. Uh, and so I vowed that the one thing I would avoid would be. be getting drawn into any kind of controversy or really having any um, involvement with it um, at all. At some point, uh, because as as you can tell, I'm I'm a guy who likes to express his opinion. At some point, um, I will talk about it in in some depth, uh, but it won't be now. And 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 when it it does happen, it will be in an arena of my choosing. (laughs) I mean, again, I... I, um, yeah, I see everything that goes on, on, on the internet. I waste as much time on the, on the internet as everybody else. I know what everybody thinks about this. And, of course, I also know the people who are reported on, on the internet, and I know what they really think and what they're really doing as well. But the best comment, I thought, I, I think it was from Damon Lindelof, you know, the guy behind Lost. He tweeted, this before Watchmen thing. Number one, I hate the idea. Number two, I'm going to buy every issue. I just- and I suspect that that might not be untypical of um, people out out there. But, you know, I, I think other than that, I, I, I'm, I don't mind that you've asked the question, John, but I think, Very I, I, think I will say no more than that. 
I understood, sir, and I and I truly appreciate even even the, that brief minute of of conversation. So that honestly, thank you, because yeah, I I do understand. I will say that, and and not with any comment from you, I I would hope that um, at the very least uh, that the fact that other people maybe much like yourself when you worked on the spirit that it, it, it must there there must be some sort of satisfaction uh because i've spoken about this with other creators who've created a character and then seen others work with the character i would think from the pure exercise of of that i i i hope and again without any comment from you that there is some sort of joy to see oh wouldn't it be interesting to see what creator x does with the creation of my own i mean that's you know that's comics that's siegel and schuster that's everybody else well, that's so that's my you know. well, that's very interesting you should say that, John, because you know what I'd like to say to that? No comment. There you go. Exactly, my man, and I totally respect that. Absolutely. <laughs> no, thank you, man. And, and, I, and truly, I appreciate you, you taking a moment and even explaining yourself to that degree. Okay. You probably read this week that uh, Dave Gibbons was asked if, uh, his thoughts on including Watchmen in uh, the DC Rebirth and what their potential role might play in the, the new stories that are to come. And Dave uh, wasn't uh, willing to comment just as much as he was willing to comment further than his single statement during Before Watchmen. Uh, A smart interviewer did ask uh, if he was consulted, and he did admit that he wasn't consulted. And again, a little slap in the face at DC uh, for not doing that as far as readers are concerned. Um, You can read the complicated uh, relationship between Alan Moore, Dave Gibbons, uh, DC, and Watchmen uh, for yourself, there's plenty of great articles to look up and very easy to find them. Uh, but the question now uh, really lays in the hands of the various creators who uh, are arguing or, or I guess, wrestling with this subject themselves and, and their willingness to uh, participate in future stories. It's going to happen. It did happen in uh, 2012 with Before Watchmen, and everyone came to the conclusion of if there's a Before Watchmen, there will likely be an After Watchmen. Here we are. Back during when it was still a question about before Watchmen, should they do it or not, I talked to Brian Azzarello, an excellent writer, and I think a guy that has a lot of integrity, and uh, he wrestled with those same questions. In fact, as we know, Brian is also in the midst of his own uh, Dark Knight story that uh, Frank Miller had some consulting input on, but really, as Frank Miller himself says, this is Brian's story. Uh, he did it back at uh, before Watchmen as well. And uh, at least in the case of Dark Knight, he has Frank's consent. But, uh, you know, I I think this is a really interesting conversation we had back in 2012 about the Rorschach and Comedian books. By the way, I enjoyed those books. I also enjoyed Darwin Cook's Minutemen series. I enjoyed Darwin and Amanda Connor's Silk Spectre series. I thought all of them were really good stories. Certainly not at the caliber of Watchmen, but entertaining stories, and I'm glad they were told. Um I say that with, uh, you know, also the, the complete understanding and respect for uh, Dave and, and Alan Moore and every creator who says this shouldn't happen. It's a fair question and it's a fair point. And uh, it's something that Brian Azzarello wrestled with himself, as you'll hear in this conversation back from 2012 on Word Balloon. Let's talk about the Before Watchmen books. What did you think, and how did it work? Did the, did DC come to you and say, "Hey, got any Watchmen ideas? We're doing this." No, no, no. The, this whole before Watchmen thing, you mean? Yeah, how your your involvement in everything? Oh no, this was my idea. Okay, the whole thing. I hey. went to DC and said, "Like, hey, I think we should be doing before Watchmen." All right, no, you, this is all me. Yeah, no, no, no. Now don't play. 
Yeah, they should. Yeah, if anybody's got a problem with it, blame me. Awesome. All right, excellent, man. I'm calling Rich Johnson right now. You know, it's you. You you've heard. I'm sure. I'm sure you have heard all of the uh, people that are that are bitching and moaning about this project and everything. Uh, I'm really glad. No one's ever said anything to my face. <laughs> I'm of two minds, legitimately, in terms of I, I absolutely respect uh, Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons and and what they've done. But I also know that so do I. As I'm sure you do, and and it really I think comes through with these stories, man. I mean, because that's the thing. It seems like, especially from an art standpoint, prior to this project, anytime some artists would just, you know, Steve Root, hey, look, I did Watchmen. Everyone's like, wow, that's cool, because it was such a great project, and we've missed new stories and new art. So it's really great that the people that they, you know, chose. Have have really come to the plate and come up with these really really interesting stories, and and obviously you've got two great stories brewing here, man. Um, the I, like I said, uh, starting with the comedian, I, I I really enjoy it, and I see the through line um, that this is the this. Yeah, is, you just like that one because it's boxing. You know? <laughs> I won't deny that. <laughs> you put some football in there, and you got the Kennedys and everything. No, man, it's it's really cool watching the sixties through his eyes. <laughs> yeah. You know? And his and his and his solutions to these things. And it I mean, this is a guy who no matter what the problem is, he always had an answer for it. I mean that's that seems to be the underlying message in each of these chapters so far. Does yeah, that well um <laughs> Eddie Blake's a very confident guy. Uh but you know, in, in, like in the original, uh, in the original Watchmen series, for the most part, he was sort of portrayed as a psychopath. But he was a psychopath that everybody admired, which was well, everybody meaning like the other characters in the in the in the Watchmen group admired him. There's something about him that you know they all. <laughs> They all liked, which kind of struck me when I was doing this. Well, then he, you know, what we saw of him in that book, yes, he's a psychopath, but he could have been a psychopath all the time. So right now, would you say in your... That's a a lot of work, by the way, to be a psychopath all the time. Absolutely. Well, you know, we see it, I mean, because it seems to me that um, there are tropes of the Punisher and Captain America in your portrayal. Because he's kind of this icon that the that the public even, you know, I mean, this is a respected icon. That's why he was able to, um, you know, elevate himself and be around the, the, the you know, main power men in government. And it seems still had a very public profile, even though he, there was this clandestine aspect to his career as well. But, I mean, that's the thing. He was this combination of being a front page guy. But then also, you know, a black ops, you know, dirty business guy, too, when when things were necessary. Yeah, he'd, he'd go far uh, in today's world. <laughs> <laughs> well, half half. And again, I'm, I'm going to use Watergate uh, analogies, half G. Gordon Liddy and half um, Audie Murphy. I mean, you know, and again, now there's a World War II guy that was, you know, nobody other than you and I know who we're talking about when I say Audie Murphy. But, you know, kind of an, an Ollie, well, because even Ollie North really wasn't a, 
a hero per se. I, I can't think of a current, a Colin Powell, if Colin Powell were an infantryman, I suppose. So maybe a Or Colin. if any of those guys on Team 6. Absolutely. SEAL Team 6, sure. Would have, oh. you know, would yeah. have, came, would have you know, actually came out. Uh, you know, so you could put a face to to them. Yeah, they'd be a they'd be a hero. What boundaries do you see, if any, in terms of telling this story? And tell and, and telling the boundaries. Both... You, you want to know yeah. the boundaries that time that that Warner Brothers Entertainment puts on me. Those are my boundaries. Are there specific editorial things of okay? You know, he can't uh, you know get a blowjob in Disneyland I... or you know and you know I'm just saying I'm euphemistically, but you know what I'm saying. Well, you know, blowjob in Disneyland, that seems gratuitous, so I probably wouldn't do that. But <laughs> there was something that I got pushed back on, yeah. Okay, okay. But as far as what exists in the Watchmen miniseries itself, the original book, is there a, okay, but, you know, X happened in the Watchmen miniseries, so therefore you can't do anything that would contradict that or, or whatever? That's something I wouldn't do. I wouldn't do that to contradict the character. Uh, there was, I did something that I thought was inform, informing the character a bit more that uh, was, that it was, I got the, uh, what was, no, that's a non-starter. I think that was, those were the words. <laughs> Who is your editor on these stories? Oh, it's Will. It's again, Will. Okay. Okay. And is Will getting his cues? From- I didn't get this from him. I didn't get this from him. No, this went up. This went up the food chain. Okay. I mean, are Dan and are Dan and uh, Jim and and Jeff involved, or is it Chiarello? I mean, it seems like Chiarello is like kind of the group editor of the of the books. No, I don't. I don't deal with Chi at all. Okay. All right. No. But but Dan, yeah, Jim, somewhat. Uh, you know, it keeps going up, man. You got the two best characters, man. I don't know who you were up against as far as other pitches for those characters, but uh, I, I really think you got. I have, I have no idea. Yeah, <laughs> I know that uh, Rorschach was offered to me. Cool. And I came back with a comedian story as well. Very cool. Is there, Is there something about the comedian that? I thought the comedian, there's, there was more of the type of story, of a type of story there with him rather than Rorschach. Would, I mean, Rorschach, Rorschach man, we're, giving, we're, giving, we're giving readers what they want to see from a Rorschach book. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, we're not treading any new ground. It's just what we're doing here. It's like, okay, this is what you like. This is what you get. Well, it's you a, really like this stuff? You really like this kind of character? Okay, here you go. <laughs> but that's great because Fine. there's room to tell these stories. And that's and and yeah, that's I'm with you, man. I think that's I, I'm impressed with the lack of boundaries as far as gratuity that seem to be there, which I think is great. And certainly Lee is uh the perfect artist, I think for this kind of book based on what you guys did with Joker? Well, you know, when it was offered to me, and uh, initially, of course, I was apprehensive. You know, but then, you know, Dan went into the 
the big picture thing. And, you know, while he's talking to me on the phone, I'm thinking about it. Cause I, you know, my initial reaction was like, Oh Jesus, Dan, I don't know. I don't know about that. So you're, you're really going to go there. And he's telling me what, you know, the plans were and everything like that. And while he's talking to me, I'm thinking about Rorschach and it's just, I'm seeing him done by Lee. And I, then I said to, to Dan, I said, uh, do you have artists picked out? Cause at that point they had writers. Okay. And I said, do you have artists picked out? And he said, uh, well, who would you want to do this? And I, I said, come on, Dan, it's a no brainer. It's like, if, if, if I were to do it, I would do it with Lee. It, it seems so, it, it's obvious. Is then I called Lee and, uh, you know, I said, Hey, listen, I got offered Rorschach. And his his reaction was, let's do it. There was no hesitation at all. None of the apprehension that I had, n- nothing. It's like, yes, let's do it. Let's do it. We could kill on that book. What was your apprehension? Where, where was your apprehension for this? It was the whole taking on Watchmen. My apprehension was, oh, my God, some people are going to hate this. <laughs> sure. And uh, does this, is this really necessary? Should Superman have stopped with Siegel and Schuster? Should Spider-Man have stopped with Lee and Ditko? Um, There's some people that would argue, yes, they should have, you know? But we've gotten good stories from different creators in the decades since for all of these characters. No argument from me there. I mean, look, I think you know what side of the fence I'm on. I'm doing doing two of the damn books. (laughs) Are you working with... Any other the uh, before Watchmen writers? As far as I'm taking it this way, just so you know, uh, things like that. Have you have you talked to any of the other writers about that? Darwin and I talked. Yeah, we talked kind of extensively about things uh, because he was using comedian and he didn't want to, you know, step on my toes. He had some ideas that he wanted to run by me first. I was like, you know, oh god, yeah, you got to do that and. Don't worry about it. You're not stepping on my toes. It's like, I'm not, you know, this isn't an ego stroke for me at all. You know, it's like what we got to worry about is the characters. So sure. it makes sense. Which, it makes sense what you want to do with that character in that particular time. I think you should do it. That's cool. And that's what I always liked about the original story is Eddie's progression from, and I mean, I even remember descriptions of this, that he looks like Bucky Barnes when he first gets started in the, in the clown outfit. And then, you know, by the time he's in his full armor and stuff like that, a much different, you know, character and really kind of ages and, 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 and morphs into, like I said, kind of this, this Punisher sort of character. There's still a chapter or so I think left of Minutemen. So it'll be interesting because it seemed like he almost went to the psychopath side earlier and he seems more grounded and a little more level-headed in your, in your story. Well, yeah, and in Minutemen, you're reading about a guy in his early 20s, you know? And you're saying because he was a middle-aged man by the time you're taking him over and stuff, he, he kind of grounded himself since that period of being wild in your 20s and stuff. Listen, Nick, are you the same as you were when you were in 20s? No, no, I'm I'm calmer. <laughs> I was angrier, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> See, I might have, I might have been more uh, reckless. Yes. I think I'm angrier now. <laughs> oh, you see, I... But, uh, <laughs> You know, so, you know, you're writing, you're reading about characters from two different eras in their lives. You know? Mm-hmm. 
Well, and I and again, now you say you don't, you haven't talked to like JMS, and I think uh, his characterization of Rorschach, I think, uh, meshes well with what you're doing and everything. Just my two okay. from what from what I've seen so far. Now again, I've only seen two issues and stuff, so you know. Yeah, um, well, I think his, I think he, well, his whole take on what he's doing, he's approaching this completely different than I'm approaching Rorschach. I mean, he's approaching the Night Owl. My Rorschach would not work in his book. He's done with humanity at the point I'm starting this. So, yeah, th- this is post-Keen Act, Avi. And this is really, I guess, after, you know, the whole scene with the uh, the dog and the and the, and the the child and, you know, the, the night. Oh, night. yeah. I mean, that was one of the things when, you know, when uh, this whole thing was pitched to me originally. I'm like, like, what kind of Rorschach story do you want to tell? And, you know, Dan was just sort of spitballing off the top of his head. You know, oh, well, you know, we thought we could do something where, you know, before he, before he snaps. And, you know, my thought immediately was, nobody wants to read that. You know, they mm-hmm. want, they want Rorschach as they know him. They want that guy. They want the guy who doesn't care anymore. So, and I said, just let me tell a Rorschach, like a, a case. That's all we're doing. You know, we're telling one of his cases. Now, this would make a great Rorschach uh, 70s uh, exploitation movie. Absolutely, man. Well, that's what we're doing. Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> well, you're not coloring outside the lines as far as what Moore and Gibbons established and everything. No, that that was definitely not nothing I wanted to do. You know, I suppose <laughs> I brought different crayons. Exactly. So. Well, and yeah, yours have sharper edges to them and stuff. So yeah, you're able to stay with the uh, lines. You know, they were using the 24 color box. I got the 64, but I need it. You know, because I think the, the, the way that that the original series was, was uh, crafted is that each one of those characters sort of uh, stood in for different, different aspects of our personalities. Um, and, you know, telling a story about Eddie as a psychopath, you know, that's just like, what do I got six issues with this guy running around doing nasty shit? Where's there's no conflict there, you know. There's got to be something where he he questions himself. You know, I have to give him, you know, a a deeper, richer uh, internal life. So I need sixty four crayons for that. Understood. And also, I, I understood and appreciated the choice in the film of having him responsible for for shooting Kennedy. But it was good to see in your book that. I didn't remember it actually happening that way in the actual comic. Did I miss a panel? Because clearly, um, in in your story, and I and I thought that was really neat that there was this misdirection by the government to send him off on the wild goose chase instead. In in the original comic, there are two mentions of the Kennedy assassination. Uh, one was. Uh, Eddie at uh, the, the cocktail party. Right. He was, he was joking with, with the senators and said, like, don't even ask me where the Kennedy assassinated, where, where I was when Kennedy got killed. Yep. And they all laughed about that. Um, 
the other one was uh, Ozymandias said something to uh, um, geez, I think it was Rorschach and, uh, and Night Owl about how uh, Eddie was in Dallas with, with Nixon when Kennedy was shot. Yeah, and then also uh, the other one I remember. I, I, yeah. The only other one I remember is um, Dr. Manhattan shaking hands with Kennedy and saying, you know, whatever. So a couple years later, he was killed in Dallas. You know, he, you know they, they show them shaking hands. And he, yeah, he didn't say who killed him. No, not at all. No. Hmm. Go on. I interrupted you. I want you to keep thinking and talking because people want to hear. Well, you. I mean, <laughs> I just you know, I took I, I took the the you know him telling the Eddie telling you know don't even ask me where I was and making a joke out of it. It was like God, you know, because he wasn't there. And he feels there's some guilt about that. You know? Mm-hmm. That's what I wanted to play with that. Well, that's the thing. It's uh, this relationship that he seems to obviously have, this very comfortable relationship he has with both Jack and Bobby. And and then obviously the the uh, reverse of what his actions, you know, compared to to what his, you know, seemingly happy conversations are with these guys. Yeah. We gonna see more of Eddie and uh, Richard Nixon? Will Nixon be? Uh, everybody wants Nixon. Should have just written a Nixon miniseries. <laughs> but it is this. You, it's the idea that more had of Nixon as this anti Roosevelt, based on the success and having these superheroes working for the government. It's really interesting. Do you see him as the colorless kind of person that he's been, you know, documented to be when when you read some of the histories about him as well? Nixon? Yeah. Or is that is that another graphic novel that there's just too much to, to get into with Richard Nixon? Is yeah, I think there is. Before okay. Watchmen, Nixon. I look. <laughs> somebody called Dan. Let's see that one. Well, the legal will be uh, all over me on that one. There you go. That's uh, everyone uh, that I wanted to bring back and uh, have their thoughts on Muhammad Ali and uh, Watchmen and its place in the DC universe. And again, I think, uh, you know, as they say, the past is prologue. And I think we experienced that today. I have no answers for you other than to go back to what Tom Spurgeon said in his uh, essay about the question. And that is, let's have good stories. Uh, DC and Marvel can do whatever the hell they want with their characters. They are their characters. And yeah, Watchmen belongs to DC. So uh, hopefully uh, what we can hope for are examples of things like for the man who has everything, the great Superman story that Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons did back in the day, uh, Dan runs excellent, Dan Slot's excellent runs on Spider-Man, uh, Brian Bendis and Ed Brubaker on Daredevil. How many other dozens, if not hundreds, of creators that uh, put their mark on characters that they didn't own, that they didn't originally come up with, but had the inspiration to tell great stories and draw great stories? So that's the great thing about comics. Uh, the market is changing and that we've, we've expressed that as well. Will these changes be enough to get DC and Marvel back to, uh, where they were, uh, before this creator owned, uh, revolution began? I kind of think the genie's out of the bottle. And as I keep saying, there's a new normal in the comic book market. And I think all the players are going to have to face that. That'll do it for today's edition of Word Balloon. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Commercial-free, but a reminder that if you enjoy the content here on Word Balloon and uh, you'd like to help the cause, uh, you can join the League of Word Balloon listeners via Patreon. If you go to my website, wordballoon.com, 
Uh, there's a Patreon, uh, you know, symbol there and uh, a tab as well with videos explaining why I think I need, you know, help with money. And uh, if you can subscribe and even do a dollar a month, that's great. I really do appreciate it. I've had some new subscribers this month, so thank you for becoming part of the League of Word Balloon listeners. Uh, there's a lot of new listeners as well. Thank you very much for joining, and I uh, hope you enjoy what you hear. Uh, but I want to also open things up more for more feedback. And I am pleased to say that I have added the SpeakPipe app to uh, the front page of wordballoon.com. It's on the right side, and it says right there that if you want to send uh, voicemail, there's a microphone right there, and you just click on that, and it will uh, allow you to uh, leave uh, your comments about uh, today's show or uh, previous shows or things you want to hear on Word Balloon. Whatever's on your mind, I'm happy to hear it. I want the feedback. Uh, you can also email me, john at wordballoon.com, or leave me comments on Twitter and Facebook as well. My Twitter handle, at John Word Balloon. Uh, my Facebook page is under my name, John Suntress, and also the Word Balloon Network of Podcasts. And I uh, really want to hear what you think, because uh, we've all got a voice. We can disagree. It's okay. So there you go. And I'll, and I'll put uh, some of the interesting questions or comments on the air, because uh, I'd like to uh, have you uh, be part of the discussion here. So thanks for listening. Um, new stuff coming up in the month of uh, June. I appreciate you listening to the clip show, but I thought everybody had something interesting to say on things that are likely on our minds being uh, comic book fans and readers these days. So uh, take care. New episode coming up very shortly with uh, new creators, uh, new authors, uh, returning guests as well. June is going to be an awesome month. Thank you for your patience and uh, patronage of Word Balloon. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2016.